I want to talk to you for a few minutes tonight about grace. The concept of grace, it's such a heavy, huge word. It's something that as Christians, you know, we, we get really familiar with, and it's something that can be confusing and almost uh, lose its meaning because we talk about it so much. I wanted to share this uh, cartoon with you. Is anybody else here a Family Circus fan? I grew up with Family Circus, love them. And since our daughter's name is Grace, Nicole framed this for her and put it, and it's, it hangs in her room. What did Grace do that's so amazing? I love that. I think sometimes that's how it is, isn't it? And you get a chance to teach your kids about this all the time. Uh, something else I think that happens, just, just to give you another picture of Grace. I was thinking about this today. You know, there, you can have grace in your marriage. This really isn't part of the sermon. I just saw it this week and thought it was funny, and I didn't see how it fit in any other sermon coming up. So, But it is about grace. And I just want to give you, this may be more for men, but not necessarily. I'm sure, I'm sure women deal with this. It's just not probably as much as men. I mean, I know men better than I know women. And I know how we are. So if, if you want some tips on being graceful in your marriage, here's four things that I think you need to practice saying. If you say these every day about something, you'll be doing really well. I was wrong. In fact, guys, let's try it together. Can we try it? Ready? I was wrong. That didn't sound very convincing. <laughs> let's try it one more time. On, on, on three. It doesn't matter what it's about. You're just wrong, okay? <laughs> you don't have to have a subject in here. It's just, I was wrong. Let's try it again. One, two, three. I was wrong. Wow, that was good, Dave. <clears throat> okay, here's the next one. Let's try to say this together. You ready? One, two, three. I'm sorry. That didn't sound convincing either. But let's try the third one anyway. Number three. I don't know. That's hard for guys to say, isn't it? Isn't it? <laughs> No. Oh, he goes, I don't know. That's right. Never wrong. So I wouldn't know. Okay. Okay. I don't know. All right. Here's the fourth thing you need to say. This is hard for men, especially. You ready? I need help. There are all these guys shaking their heads. They can't even say it just in fun. There's, you got nothing on the line here. You could just say this. You could actually be earning points with your wife right now and you're not doing it. That's funny. Okay. Well, if that's not working for you, I found this poem that might help you. Okay. It's an old poem by someone I've never heard of, Ogden Nash. And it says, it goes like this, to keep your marriage brimming with love and your loving cup, whenever you're wrong, admit it. And whenever you're right, shut up. <laughs> All right, that's just a little help. That was a little extra. You got a sermon from pastor, uh, free. You got a sermon here. This is just, and this is just a little marriage help, but it has to do with grace because we all need grace in every part of our life, including this. But in all seriousness, grace in the church. Here's the thing. People thirst for grace. As human beings, we walk around and we are so thirsty for grace. We need it. We need it so deeply, so badly. It's something that, it's something that we need, and yet, unfortunately, we don't get a lot, lot of it's sad, but the church of Christ, I'm talking about Christian churches, our church, Crown Point, every church, we were meant to be vessels of grace to the world, but unfortunately, that wondrous gift of grace that God has given through the church, through himself, through us, and the thing that we're supposed to transmit to the world, we dilute it all the time, so much so that people don't even see it anymore. I read this recently, a little girl's poem says, Oh God, make the bad people good and make the good people nice. I grew up in church. There's a lot of not nice, good people. 
I remember as a kid, we knew who to avoid. And sometimes, sadly, it was the same lady that was down here getting blessed was not nice. And that doesn't, it's not limited to experiences in the church. I mean, that can be in the world too. And, and the light we're supposed to be in the world sometimes we're not. The very thing that we were made to be, we're not. There's a story I read in a book, and it, it's something I don't know if I can tell you even the story without getting choked up, but there's a story about a prostitute who wasn't her choice in life, but it's what happened to her. And she ended up having a child that she couldn't afford to feed and couldn't afford to feed herself. It's a true story. She'd come into a help center, and what she was telling the people at the, at the community center was, um, I'm at my wit's end. I'm at the end of my rope because I can make more if I rent out my daughter than I can make in a week. So the community worker said, well, have you thought about going to any of these churches? And she looked at him and she goes, why would I do that? All they would do is make me feel worse than I already do. How sad is that? Because when, when the people out in the world saw Jesus, the, the people who were in most need, they flocked to him. And yet today they don't flock here. They look at the church as a place where they're going to be judged and and ridiculed and pushed away and told, hey, you need to clean up first before you come in here. And that's the sad state of affairs that we are in today. The church isn't known for grace. But grace isn't gone, at least not from our language. I mean, we talk about grace a lot. Grace still exists in our culture. I mean, I know a lot of people who say grace, right? You hear that. You, people are grateful when they get good service. And if they're grateful enough, they might leave a gratuity. Are you seeing this word? And if somebody's a gracious host, that means they went above and beyond the call of duty and you might have been really gratified. And if you're a musician, grace notes actually are just notes added to make something, a, add a little flourish to music. And if somebody falls from grace, could be because they were an ingrate and maybe they've been become a disgrace. And because of that, they would be persona non grata. Do you see what this is? This word is, is in our culture, and everybody knows what it means. It means when you get something that you didn't deserve, or somebody went above and beyond the call of duty. But unfortunately, the church isn't known for that anymore. It's sad to me, because think about what, what churches have maybe historically done, maybe helped people with housing or food or, or clothes or helped support people in rough times or given them counseling or maybe care for the sick or the sad thing is that even with all of that, the world does that right now instead of us. It's like the world is known for that instead of the church. I mean, have you ever heard of a church? Churches maybe trying to outgrace each other. You don't hear that. It's as if the world is doing a better job at the things we've been called to do. And why is that? Why is it that today we're not known for being the place where grace is received? How about in you? I wonder sometimes if maybe it's because we as individuals in the church have forgotten what grace meant. Maybe it's because um, 
it's been too long since we needed that much grace. And because of that, it's become too familiar and we don't any longer feel like we need to extend it to others because we've already received it for ourselves and we're set and it's all good. I, I heard the story of a kid and I, I've experienced this. I've seen this happen before. Maybe you've seen this happen where you're in church and you know, you've got somebody brings their kid in with them to church and the little guy is smiling over the shoulder at everybody. You ever seen that happen? And then everybody behind him is at first they're maybe annoyed because the little guy's smiling, but then it's something about a smile that that's infected, infectious, isn't it? And even if you've been having a bad day, if you see a little baby smile and if they do that little baby giggle, it just starts to make you happier. And then maybe as you're in church and the little dude's smiling at everybody as he's looking back behind him and you see this, this kind of a, a, an effect where it's just kind of domino effect all through behind everybody. And then maybe his mom sees him and it's like embarrassed, like, I can't believe he's distracting everybody. He jerks him down and says, stop it. Don't you realize you're in church? Why do we do that? Not the kids shouldn't distract. I'm not saying that, but what, what do we mean when we say that? You're in church. What are you being happy for? Do you ever do you forget that God is, is happy? I mean, so often God is, God is seen as like the God of judgment and, and all of that is true. He's a God of true fairness and all of that, but he's also a happy God. I mean, he's a God that, that gives us happiness. He's a source of all happiness and all that is good. And when I wake up in the morning and I see a sunrise and the beauty and the colors. And I, I look at that and I think, what is that even there for? Why would God even do that? No animals appreciate that. It's not like they look up and say, wow, we do. He did that because he's good and he loves us and he cares for us and he provides for us. And yet so often we jerk that little kid down and say, did you realize you're in church? Let me get serious here. Hmm. Think about this. There's, a, there's an author that I've read years ago. His name is Lewis Smedes. He's done a lot of work on forgiveness, written a lot of books on forgiveness. And he's done some studies where he, he compared grace and shame in the world. And he says that there's three main sources for shame for most people. The first one, he says, is secular culture in the world today. He says the second one is unaccepting parents. And sadly, the third one is a graceless religion graceless religion. What he says about that is the world, what it does is it puts all this pressure on you to look good. And if you don't, you're shamed. Pressure to feel good all the time. And if you don't, you're shamed and pressure to make good. And if you're not successful enough, whatever definition that is that haunts you, you're shamed. And with parents, it's that voice ringing in your ear. Aren't you ashamed of yourself? And you're going to never meet their approval. But the saddest part about that is, and the part that I think affects us tonight, is graceless religion that becomes all about the rules. All about the rules and only about the rules. And it becomes a superficial religion that's, that's based on deciding whether or not you've measured up to the rules enough. And then the idea that there's eternal rejection coming if you don't fit the rules. That's not what God intended. So what is grace then? Do you remember? Do you remember what it was like to be in the place where you experienced his grace for the first time? Do you remember what it was? Let me, let me give you a silly example. And I don't know if this has ever happened to you. It never happened to me. I wish it did. But there's a story about this kid who's running to get to class and he's forgetting his books and then he steps in and he got, oh my goodness, it's exam day. And the teacher says, this exam, as you remember from your syllabus, 
Who read their syllabus in college? <laughs> One person, thank you, is worth 50% of your grade. And you hear a collective sigh and gasp in the class because half the class didn't do it. You know, there may have been one or two people prepared. So on their desks, already there is the exam and it's turned upside down. The teacher says, don't touch the exam before you do, because I want to give you all the exact same opportunity to do this exam. I'm going to do a quick review. So the smile creeps over people's faces and they're happy about it. And as the teacher starts to do the review, that smile starts to fade away because each one of the students realizes there's things this teacher's talking about that I don't remember from this class. It was never in the, he never talked about it. So finally, one of the students raises their hand and says, Professor, um, I, I'm embarrassed to ask this question, but some of the things you're mentioning here, I don't remember you talking about in class before. And the teacher says, well, if you remember in the syllabus, grown again, you were also responsible for everything that was in your textbook, not just what was covered in class. So some of the things you're hearing now, you probably didn't read and you should have, and you know you should have. And everybody's kind of bows their heads because they know they should have. So when the teacher gets done, he says, okay, I want everybody on the count of three to turn your test over. He says one, two, and they turn the tests over and every answer is filled in. Now, some of the students are thinking, hey, this is a trick. This is a trick. I mean, the answers are filled in, but what if they're not right? What if the teacher's trying to trick us or what if the teacher's fooling us or something? And the teacher stops him and says, before you ask any more questions, I just want to tell you what's going on. I put the correct answers on your test. I created the test. I created the syllabus. All of it's there for you. I've already done it for you. Every one of you, because of this test today, is going to get an A. Everybody's just sitting there. They're overwhelmed. How would, why would this person do this? Why would the teacher do it? So the teacher goes into explanation. I didn't do it because you deserved it. None of you deserved it. I didn't do it because any of you studied enough to get an A on your own because you didn't. None of you would have passed this class had I not done this for you. And what that is, is just a, it's kind of a corny example, but it's an example of grace. It's the same thing that we get because none of us have deserved it. The rules are out there, the syllabus, and you should have known. We all are in that position where we should have known, but we didn't, and none of us measure up. And that's how it works. It's bad math, isn't it? If you think about it. I mean, if it, if it really added up correctly, then none of us would get the grace because none of us deserve it. There's nothing you could do to earn this from God. None of us could be perfect enough. The saddest part about it is, you don't want God to add it up right, really. Because as good as you think you might be, there's still something where you've fallen short. And as good as you might be compared to one another or somebody sitting by you or someone from your past, the fact is that is no matter, no matter what, you're not compared to them anyway. You're all compared to one standard that none of us measure up to. Maybe you remember this parable of the workers in the vineyard that Jesus told. This is found in Matthew chapter 20. And in this portion of scripture, he tells this story about a vineyard owner who needed workers in his field. So what he did is he went out into the street in the morning at nine o'clock and he said, I will pay you a day's wages if you'll come and work for me. And he got workers. Then he realized he needed more workers. So he went out again at noon, got some more workers. And he told them the same thing. I'll pay you a day's wages if you work in my fields. Then again at three and then again at five. And at the end of the day, he called all the workers together and he started to pay those workers who came in at five first. 
And when he started to pay them, the other workers said, wait a minute, that's not fair. They're getting paid the same as me. They expected more pay because they had started work earlier. And in the end, the vineyard owner said, should you be jealous because I'm kind to others? That is grace. And yet, aren't we that way sometimes? We look at it and we say, wait a minute, it's not fair. I've worked harder. This person just came to Christ or you don't know what they did. And yet God's going to treat us all the same. And yet he does. And I, for one, am grateful for that because I know me and I know what he did for me. It's not fair. So what is this grace? What is it? (laughs) It is bad. I saw that stuff again. The fact is this. There's that Chris Tomlin song. That line in there that says, I'll never know. Can you sing it? Can you just say it with me? How much it cost to see my sins upon that cross. I'll never know how much it costs to see my sins on that cross. When I think about the fact that Christ died for each of us and my sins helped put him there, that overwhelms me. It, it overwhelms me to think of that. I'm overwhelmed because it gets personal then, doesn't it? It's easier to think of it in the abstract or to think about it as if it's third person and someone else. But it's me. I did that to him. He died for me. That blood he shed was because of me. I should have been there, but it was was him. The thing is that I need help, and he's there to help. Scripture says it like this. I, yes, I alone will blot out your sins for my own sake and will never think of them again. It's Isaiah 43, 25. This portion of scripture from Psalms is so powerful. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass and they flourish like a flower in the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. One more scripture I want to share with you. Micah seven nineteen says, you will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all of our iniquities into the depths of the sea. None of us deserve that. None of us deserve that. None of us deserve that. And yet that's what he does for us. That's the God we serve. It's like this. What, what is grace? It's, it's being justified. And I know this may seem maybe too children's church for you, but I love this idea. It's being justified. It's just as if I'd never sinned, just as if I'd never sinned. Now, that's difficult for us to understand, isn't it? 
I want to do this for you for a minute. When I was looking at those scriptures and talking about how it's as a father has compassion, I was reminded about a story in this book by Philip Yancey. It's what's so amazing about grace. And he does a retelling of the lost son. I want to read it to you. If I can get through it. A young girl grows up on a cherry orchard just above Traverse City, Michigan. Her parents, a bit old fashioned, tend to overreact to her nose ring and then the music she listens to and the length of her skirts. They ground her a few times and she seethes inside. I hate you, she screams at her father when he knocks on the door of her room after an argument. And then that night, she acts on a plan that she has mentally rehearsed scores of times and she runs away. She's visited Detroit only once before on a bus trip with her church youth group to the Watch the Tigers play. And because of the newspapers and Traverse City report in lurid detail, the gangs and the drugs and the violence in downtown Detroit, she concludes that it's probably the last place her parents would ever look for her. California, maybe, or Florida, but not Detroit. Her second day there, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. He offers her a ride, buys her lunch, arranges a place for her to stay. Then he gives her some pills and make her feel better than she's ever felt before. She was right all along, she decides. Her parents were keeping her from all of this fun. The good life continues for a month, two months, a year. The man with the big car, she calls him boss, teaches her a few things that men like. Since she's underage, men pay a premium for her. She lives in a penthouse. She orders room service whenever she wants. Occasionally, she thinks about the folks back home, but then their lives now seem so boring and provincial that she can hardly believe she even grew up there. She has a brief scare when she sees her picture printed on the back of a milk carton with the headline, have you seen this child? But by now she has blonde hair and with all the makeup and the body piercing jewelry she wears, nobody would mistake her for a child anyway. Besides, most of her friends are runaways and nobody squeals in Detroit. After a year, the first sallow signs of illness appear and it amazes her how fast the bots turns mean. These days we can't mess around, he growls. And before she knows it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. She still turns a couple of tricks a night, but they don't pay for much, and all the money goes to support her habit. And when winter blows in, she finds herself sleeping on a metal grate outside the big department store. Sleeping is the wrong word, really. A teenage girl at night in downtown Detroit can never relax her guard. Dark bands circle her eyes, her cough worsens. One night as she lays awake, listening for footsteps, all of a sudden, everything about her looks different. She no longer feels like a woman of the world. She no longer feels like she's so important and worldly. She feels more like a little girl lost in a cold and frightening city. She begins to whimper. Her pockets are empty and she's hungry. She needs a fix. She pulls her legs tied up underneath her and shivers under the newspaper that she's pulled on top of her as a coat. Something jolts a synapse of memory and a single image fills her mind. It's of May in Traverse City. When a million cherry trees bloom at once and And her golden retriever dashes through the rows and rows of blossomy trees in chase of a tennis ball. God, why did I leave? She says to herself. The pain stabs at her heart. My dog back home eats better than I do now. She's sobbing. She knows in a flash that more than anything in the world, she wants to go home. Three straight phone calls, three straight connections with the answering machine. She hangs up without leaving a message the first two times, but the third time she says, Dad, Mom, it's me. I'm wondering maybe, maybe if I could come home. I'm catching a bus up your way. It'll get there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, well, I guess I'll just stay on the bus until it hits Canada. 
it takes about seven hours for a bus to make it all the stops between Detroit and Traverse City. And during that time, she realizes the flaws in her plan. What if my parents are out of town and missed the message? I didn't even know if they were home. She should have waited another day or two or maybe until she could actually talk to them. And even if they're home, they probably wrote her off as dead a long time ago. She should have given them some time to overlook, overcome the shock. Her, th- her thoughts back, back, bounce back and forth between those worries and the speech she's preparing for a father. Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's all mine. Dad, can you forgive me? She says the words over and over and over, her throat tightening even as she rehearses them. She hasn't apologized to anyone in years. The bus has been driving with lights on since Bay City. Tiny snowflakes hit the pavement, rubbed worn by thousands of tires and the asphalt steams. She's forgotten how dark it gets out here at night. A deer darts across the road and the bus swerves. Every so often a billboard, a sign posting the mileage to Traverse City. Oh God, we're almost there. When the bus finally rolls into the station, its air brakes hissing in protest, the driver announces in a crackly voice over the microphone, 15 minutes, folks, that's all we have here. 15 minutes to decide her life. She checks herself in the compact mirror, smooths her hair, licks the lipstick off her teeth. She looks at the tobacco stains on her fingerprints and wonders if her parents will notice if they're even there. She walks into the terminal not knowing what to expect. Not one of the thousand scenes that played out in her mind prepare her for what she sees. There, in the concrete walls and plastic chairs, the bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 brothers and sisters and great aunts and uncles and cousins and a grandmother and a great-grandmother. They're all wearing, they're all wearing goofy party hats and blowing noisemakers and taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a computer-generated banner that reads, Welcome home. And out of the crowd of well-wishers breaks her dad, And she stares out through tears quivering in her eyes like hot mercury that burns, begins the memorized speech. Dad, I'm sorry. I know. And he interrupts her. Hush, child. We don't have time for that. No time for apologies. You'll be late for the party. A banquet's waiting for you at home. I think of that and I can hardly read it. Not because it's my life, but it is my life. And it's your life. And we forget about it because... It's just easy to do that. I want you to think about this. You're, you're no better than that thief on the cross. You know, I've often read that story about the thief on the cross. And when, when he turned to Jesus and he said, remember me in paradise. And Jesus says to him, this day you will be with me. And I've thought about that story a lot of times. And it, and it hit me so hard the other day because I was thinking about it. You know what? Jesus knew he was only, only converting because... He was scared. You realize that? Jesus knew that. I mean, I've heard people try to rationalize and say, well, Jesus knew that he would have lived and he would have. You know what? No. Jesus knew he would never go to church one time. You realize that? He would never give a penny in the offering. He would never get to apologize to one person that he had wronged. Jesus knew that. Why did he give him grace? Because that's who God is. That's who he is. That's who he is. That's who he is for that thief. And that's who he is for you and for me. That's who he is. So many times the message that gets through to us in church and the message that we transmit to the world is be good. And if you're good enough, you get to go to heaven. And that's not it. You can't be good. What the message is that we should be telling them is that we should all be yelling, help. 
I'm a sinner and I'm in need of your grace. Because that's the truth and that's who we are. I, I love this saying. Someone says it's, we're, we're just beggars showing another beggar where the bread is. That's who we are. All of us, that's who we are. Grace is free. But never forget, it's only free because of the price God himself paid for it. But it's free. There's a, there's a concept in psychology. It's called the looking glass self. I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but maybe you haven't heard it said this way, but it's, you've heard it because you've lived it. Because I've lived it. I know you've lived it. And what it says is that the person we see in the looking glass is usually what we think the person we respect most sees us as. Let me explain. Instead of seeing who we really are, we see who we think our boss sees or who our husband or wife or the person you loved or whoever that is, who they see. And you don't see who you really see or who you really are. It's like the woman you know who's pretty, but she doesn't think so because she doesn't see what you see. Imagine if you saw what God himself saw. And if that's the mirror you looked through, not even your own mirror with your own eyes, but with his eyes, and you saw a person that was worth dying for to him, worth redeeming to him. If, if instead of who you saw and all the memories and all the things you know you did, you saw somebody who not only was worth redeeming, but who he sees as redeemed, who he had taken the sins and thrown them from the east, from the west, that never meet, and he trampled on them and thrown them into the deepest sea, if that's who he saw. Imagine if it was like this, that if Christ himself walked in the room right now and there was some sin on your mind and you saw him and you were overwhelmed with him and you, thought, and you ran up to him and you'd already asked for forgiveness, but you still feel that guilt and you ran up to him and you said, I just need to tell you one more time, I'm sorry. And he would look at you with this look of wonderment and he'd say, what? What are you sorry for? And you'd repeat it and tell him about it and he'd say, I'm sorry, I, I don't remember that. What I see is a pure child of the king. Someone who is as pure as me. How can that be? Grace. That's the only way it can be is grace. Now, are we talking about cheap grace? Because some people struggle with this because they act as if no, it's, it's too easy. You know what? It's not easy. It's not easy because it works like this. When you see yourself as Christ sees you, then you live differently. Everything about you is different because you are so grateful to him for the grace he's extended that nothing else is the same. You cannot be the same. Things change. You want to live different for him because of what he did for you. You treat people different because of what he did for you. When you walk out in the world, you aren't judgmental and, and ungracious. You are full of grace because that's the grace extended to you. You want to give that to others. It changes everything. You love God and you love others. You see that? That's Christianity. That is everything. Because of what he did for us, your love for him knows no bounds. You could spend the rest of your life, just like Nick said earlier tonight, we could spend our entire evening and on and on and thanking him for everything that he has done. 
Because of his grace toward us, we love him and there's no bound to that, no end to it. And the same thing is true for everybody else that we run into. Everybody we come in contact with, we love them because of what he did for us. Nick, could you come back up here? Because of that, everything changes. Everything changes. You know what? Not only is it not easy, but it's not fair. And I'm thankful it's not fair. Because of that, we are compelled to connect with people who need that same grace that we've experienced. Because of that, we go and we tell them because of what he's done for us. You know, this, this um, uh, fall festival we're doing, it's not just for our kids to have fun. Man, I love having fun. I will always have fun. Anytime you're around me, we are going to be having fun. That's, that's how I do life. But that's not it. That's not the end of it. It's because we want people to come to Christ. Please do everything you can to make that happen. You need to love others that way. This cars at the crown thing, I love, I love old cars. I'd love to own one someday. May never. But that's not why we do it. We do it because it's an opportunity to invite people that would never normally come to church, but they might come to this. I'm excited about that. It's an opportunity that way. But it doesn't end there. It's something you share with people every day of your life and everything you do. It's because you know that there's a Sunday school class that's touching on something, that's changing something in you, and you mention it to a friend or a family member, and they come to class with you. It's because you're part of a life group that you have found life in. And the grace you're experiencing in there, you know your friends need to be part of. And you say, hey, come with me to the life group I'm part of. You will love it just like I do. It goes on and on. You listen to people. You serve them. You help them. It changes everything. D.L. Moody said it this way. <clears throat> of 100 men, one will read the Bible, while 99 will read the Christian. Jesus said it this way. Now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Would you stand with me and bow your heads for a second? With your heads bowed for a minute, I, I know that you, like me, you can't talk about this with, without being somewhat overwhelmed or affected by the fact that God has loved us and given us grace that we don't deserve. I, I assume that most everybody in here is already a Christian, but it's possible that you're standing in here tonight and you are not. And, and maybe you haven't surrendered your life to Christ and you've sit, sat here and realized that there's a God who loves you and wants to give you that kind of grace and forgiveness and you haven't experienced that yet. If you're here, if you would just raise your hand for a second, let's give you a chance to do that really quickly. If that's you, I would love to talk to you after the service. All right, one more minute. All right, for the rest of us, here's the deal. You have experienced that grace. And because of that, we as Christians need to redefine what Christianity is and what the church is and does. What I'd like us to do for a few minutes in just the solitude of this moment, as Nick is playing music, I just want you to be, let's, let's talk to God for a minute. Pray with me as I pray. Father, we, we are so grateful the grace you've given us. 
God, we want to be that grace to a, a lost and dying world. God, just as, just, as, just as Jesus said in that scripture in John, we want people to know us by our love, by the way we treat them, by the way we live, by the grace that we extend to them like you extended to us. Can you show us for a minute what that looks like? Show each of us individually what that means for us, who that means, maybe a situation. God, will you bring up to mind a situation, maybe something that's happened or might or would happen or is going to happen, and a person maybe that needs that grace extended. God, we're just going to be quiet for a minute, and I just pray that you would just speak to us. Let your Holy Spirit clarify and illuminate that for us.